0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Weird House Cinema. This is Rob Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we're going to be talking about the movie that uh, that, that delivers on the promise when your Titanic sinks. This is the movie you're going to meet. It is Deep Blue Sea, which uh, I, I feel like we're... Getting into uh, what you might call slightly dangerous waters here, because this is <laughs> definitely going to be one of the most mainstream films we've ever done.
1: Yeah, it's um, it's also as dangerously close as we've come to covering a movie from this century. Uh, mm-hmm. It's from nineteen ninety nine. Uh, it's also the most expensive film we've ever watched, more than doubling the thirty million dollar budget of Free Jack. Um, I should also add that it is without a doubt the deepest and the bluest film that we've watched. <laughs>
0: Is this also the first movie we've done that had its own dedicated original pop song to go with it? Uh,
1: I guess so. Those those two tracks from Zat didn't quite... Um... Oh, that's right. I forgot about those. Okay, so never mind. I take it back. Oh, yeah. we oh, also take back the sun, Joe, because Godzilla versus Hetera had its own uh, track as well. Oh,
0: that's right, too. Okay, so I've just forgotten everything. You know what? <laughs> I think maybe even Teens in the Universe had its own music. Um, but this but had no. its own dedicated music video, which we'll get to. Right. And I, this, that may be a first. So this is a thing I love from like big budget '90s movies, which is the dedicated popular genre song for the movie. So it's not a movie that's a musical. It's just got like a song that'll maybe play on the end credits, mm-hmm. and is often done by a musician who's also an actor in the movie. So like some of the Will Smith movies in the ni- the '90s had a song you know, Men in Black or Wild Wild West. This movie has LL Cool J in it, in a, a, a tour de force performance, and it has this, the song for the original motion picture. It's called Deepest Bluest. My hat is like a shark's fin. And if you've never seen this music video, you must go watch right this moment. Yeah,
1: I mean, it's got it all. It's got uh, It's got water dancing and synchronized swimming. It's got LL Cool J just looking ridiculously jacked. It's got sharks footage from the film. Uh, he incorporate morphs into, into a his, shark. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And then, yeah, a full on morphing into a shark human hybrid. Yeah. Uh, one thing I like about th- these songs and music videos, uh, like you said, that used to come out with all these blockbusters is they would, of course, come out as part of the hype train leading up to the release of the film. Mm-hmm. And they would, I think, to a large extent, inform how the movie was supposed to make you feel, you know? Yeah. So, like, yeah. yeah. I forget which Batman movie it was, but you there were several different tracks. Like one of them was a U2 track, but then you also had that that Seal track about uh, what I've been kissed by the thorn of a rose. Kiss from a
0: rose, yeah, it's a, that's for Batman Forever. The one with Val Kilmer as Batman, Tommy mm-hmm. Lee Jones as Two Face, Jim Carrey as the Riddler, Nicole Kidman as uh, Batman's girlfriend. Her her character's name in the movie is Doctor Chase Meridian, which, as Roger <laughs> Ebert said, her name sounds like a bank. It uh, does. <laughs> That's also the Batman movie that has the the thing we've talked about several times on the show, the uh, the bank vault full of boiling acid.
1: (laughs) Chase Meridian might have worked in a... a in a Cronenberg film, uh-huh. uh, I love oh, a I good Cronenberg that. name. But yeah, you you got to be Cronenberg to get away with some of those. Yeah, so so that song let you know that. And I never actually saw Batman Forever, but it it informed me that this was going to be a romantic, heartfelt affair. Um, songs like uh, that Aerosmith song for that movie about the the, the, Armageddon. the Armageddon. Yeah, I
0: don't was what was that? I don't want to miss a thing. Or yeah, don't want to
1: close it? my eye. I don't know something like that. But the, the, but the, the, it
0: made it made you think though that it was about the asteroid. It's like the asteroid hoping it doesn't miss Earth and like just do a, a narrow narrow pass by. Well, I mean, it told
1: you that yeah, this is a disaster film, but it's about our feelings in the disaster film. It's about mm-hmm. our loved ones and all. And likewise, deepest bluest. Uh, I think for the most part, accurately prepares you for the fact that this film is just going to come at you. This film is just coming at you like a shark with its intensity. uh, And it it, it might play
0: around with you a little bit. Mm -hmm. Uh, It might play with its food, but it is going to devour you. It's a song full of superlatives, and the entire mood mm-hmm. of it is superlatives. Uh, it, as it as it says, other fish in the sea, but barracudas ain't equal to a half human predator created by a needle. Then <laughs> that's 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 the plot. I mean, that that's that's accurate. LL
1: Cool J read his script for sure.
0: I mean, the song is easy to make fun of because the premise is so ludicrous. But I, I also want to say I think it is legitimately like a a, a well crafted rap song. It has a lot of really funny wordplay in it. Yeah, yeah, no, it's 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 a solid
1: track. Much like L. O. Cool J's performance in this film, as we'll discuss, is really solid. Um, intentionally funny in just the right places, and mm-hmm. then intentionally cool in all
0: just the right places. It's an it's a nice alchemy they manage with his character. So, in addition to being the most expensive movie we've ever done, probably the most mainstream movie we have ever done. I guess it depends on if you count. I don't know, like the Ewoks movie or something that kind of fits in in a strange. Place like being part of a very mainstream franchise, but being a mm-hmm. weird sort of outgrowth of it, uh, and uh, being the one of the most recent movies we've ever done. This is also our first shark movie, right? We haven't done another one.
1: Yeah, I don't, I don't think so. Um, I feel like sharks have maybe come up just as. In in conversation, mm-hmm. like in uh, like Death Moon, they're like, oh, it looks like a shark, got him, that kind of thing.
0: Oh, OK. Yeah. And the shark movie genre is very interesting to me for a number of reasons. So I want to talk about a few facts. First of all, between the years 1975 and 2021, I checked and there have been over 18.6 billion shark <laughs> movies produced in the United States alone during that time. Oh, wow. That's uh, not even counting Italy. That That's true. And, and I, I'm imagining like Carl Sagan, uh, you know, in a deeply somber voice saying like, there are more shark movies on earth than there are stars in the sky. <laughs> uh, and, and so you've got that figure. I mean, like the shark movies are just prolific, uh, copious. You know, they, the, the world overfloweth with shark films. And yet I can literally only think of one shark movie ever made that I would argue is good in an unqualified sense. I would mm-hmm. say the closest runner up is probably the movie we're talking about today, which is, uh, you know, you you can level some criticisms at it. But I think this movie definitely works. You can get this one off the lot. Yeah. So there are like a bazillion shark movies. Almost all of them are in some conventional sense, at least pretty bad. And essentially all of them are in some sense derivative of this single original film. You can probably find a little exception here or there with something that that has a very different approach. But almost all of them descend from Jaws, you know, directed by Mm -hmm. Steven Spielberg, released in 1975. I don't really need to introduce Jaws. I think everybody knows Jaws. Yeah, I mean, suffice to
1: say, Jaws is a shark movie. It is the the granddaddy of all shark movies. It's also – the granddaddy of all summer blockbusters. It's one of the most influential films of all time.
0: Yeah. And rightly so. I mean, I I watch Jaws almost every year. Rachel and I watch it on Fourth of July every year. It's a tradition and I never get tired of it. Jaws is endlessly entertaining. It has that great 70s character driven quality, you know, uh, especially with Robert Shaw as Quint. Mm -hmm. I mean, I just never get tired of it. But it's somehow it's funny that it has spawned this many imitators and that almost all of them mostly fail. And you've got a couple of different kinds of imitators. So you've got some like uh, one we've alluded to several times, but never devoted an episode to L'ultimo Squalo*, that, you know, the last <laughs> shark, or I think it's also mm-hmm. called Great White, uh, which are just direct scene by scene ripoffs of Jaws. Yeah, yeah, that one. We've alluded to that one before. That one has Vic Morrow in it,
1: playing the Quint character. Yeah, um, or the, their version of the Quint character.
0: Yeah, and and then there are others that are uh, at a greater remove. You know, might be several levels of abstraction away from their progenitor, and yet still, I think it's a fair bet that almost none of these shark movies would exist if it were not for Jaws.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's it really. You really can't overstate its importance,
0: especially if you 're talking about shark movies right uh, so I think you can kind of imagine Jaws as this grand ancestral great king who produced a great many incompetent warring heirs that <laughs> battle for supremacy once they're you know once the paterfamilias has passed on into the great hall under the waves and so the movie we 're talking about today is one of these many warring uh heirs to the throne, one of these contenders. And like a lot of these shark movies, it is full of what are, in fact, conscious nods to Jaws. For example, I saw this pointed out by one film critic, and this was actually confirmed by one of the writers of the movie. How long is the shark in Jaws? What, uh, nose to tail. What's the length? Do you remember the line? I, no, I don't. <laughs> oh, okay. So, we'll, well, Hooper sees it. He says, that's a 20-footer. And then Quint says, 25. Three tons of them. <laughs> oh, so he's tw- yes. Yeah, 25 feet. How long is the shark in deep blue sea? They say in the movie, it's 26 feet long. It's a literal one up. (laughs) And uh, screenwriter, Duncan Kennedy acknowledged that this was deliberate. I'm not sure whose idea it was. It might've been Rennie Harlan, the director. Mm Mm-hmm. But I was also reading a chapter from a book called Horror Zone, The Cultural Experience of Contemporary Horror Cinema, uh, which is a book I've, I've talked about on the show a little bit before. It's edited by a scholar named Ian Conrich, but this chapter was by a scholar named uh, Stacy Abbott, and it's about the idea of the horror blockbuster, what happens when horror movies become like big event-type films. And Stacy Abbott points out that in the original marketing materials for the movie, one of the taglines was, quote, Bigger, smarter, faster, meaner. Uh, So I think it's possible that could refer to Daft Punk. I'm not sure how the... The the timing lines up there, but those are also comparative words: bigger, smarter, <laughs> faster, meaner than what? I think the unspoken part is pretty well understood. It's it's saying bigger, smarter, faster, meaner than the shark in Jaws or otherwise Jaws derivative movies that you've seen before. It also seems like a setup
1: for like, okay, you're gonna you're gonna make a shark movie too, bigger, smarter, faster, meaner. Pick two. <laughs> That's all you get. <laughs> What year was that Daft Punk song, by the way? Oh, man, I don't yeah. remember. It, it feels like it's just always been a part of the the musical landscape, doesn't it?
0: Oh, I just looked it up. That was 2001. Really? Lucy Blue huh. Sea
1: predates it. Well, it, it I, it's released predates... Um, an evolution
0: in my taste in music, so uh, so it, it feels to me like it's always been there, but another thing about Deep Blue Sea is that it displays one of the ways that a you know a grandchild of, of Jaws the Great can distinguish itself, and that is by fusing with another film concept and becoming a monstrous hybrid. Mm. And so I think it's pretty clear what's going on with the elevator pitch for Deep Blue Sea. Uh, it, it is that it is actually supposed to be an if they made it of two different Steven Spielberg movies. On one hand, you've got Jaws, since nearly mm-hmm. all shark movies descend from the king. And then on the other hand, you've got Jurassic Park. Definitely more recent Spielberg feed in and the main source for a lot of the plot situation uh, plot developments throughout the movie. You know, it's about people visiting a facility to do a safety checkup after there is a breakout and someone is injured. And then there's stuff about like the the animals being smarter than people expected and so on Mm -hmm. and so forth. I, I mean, it just follows Jurassic Park almost to a T.
1: Yeah, uh, absolutely. I'll say there's there's one scene in there that also feels very Poseidon adventure. So uh-huh. uh, I think there's also a, a fair amount of just disaster movie DNA thrown in here. Yeah. Um, which is good. It helps it helps pad out the film. Because um, uh, it's one of the problems with any kind of a monster movie. What do you do when the monster is not actively on screen, actively attacking or stalking, right?
0: Right. You have characters just like putting bandages on each other and saying, like, we'll make it through this. Yeah, <laughs> It can't just be that, right? Yeah, you got to have some other set pieces in mind other than just the monster. And so I agree that there are a few other things that get drawn on as well. I can see Poseidon Adventure, definitely. Uh, But I would also say that it's not just the plot mechanics. Jurassic Park, I think, is also the inspiration for the sort of scattershot themes of this movie, uh, which, like Jurassic Park Basically reflects anxieties over dangers about what could happen when arrogant scientists screw around with Mother Nature, Mm -hmm. which is actually not just Jurassic Park. That's more broadly a theme of a lot of sci-fi horror in the 90s particularly fears about the emerging field of genetic engineering, which was just starting to look like plausible reality at the turn of the century or as the turn of the century approached. You remember, like, the Human Genome Project was launched in 1990 and then completed in 2003. So this was sort of the the limbo period, the sort of what's going to happen with genetics period.
1: Yeah, you can basically hear a 90s um, trailer narrator saying – In the year 1990, the Human Genome Project began.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And so forth. (laughs) And it ends up with something about genius sharks. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But then I I wanted to further situate Deep Blue Sea in recent film history uh, by adding a note from uh, something else in that Stacey Abbott chapter in Horror Zone. So she points out that before 1999 – it was not normal for studios to release horror films in the summer. Like the summer release schedule is normally, or at the time was normally a time um, for your mass market blockbusters in genres like action and adventure. Mm -hmm. And traditionally most horror movies were released in the autumn, especially around Halloween or around the Christmas season, which in a way I'm still partial to. I I like it when horror movies come out in October. Yeah. Yeah. But there was a revolution in this principle in the summer of 99. So uh, Abbott writes, quote, "...the summer of 99, however, marked a distinctive change to this release pattern with a number of horror films opening throughout the summer and making a noticeable impact upon the box office, reconceived through the high-concept style either in their reworking of the genre or through their marketing." Two of the summer's major releases drew directly from classic horror texts as source material, Stephen Summers' remake of the universal horror film The Mummy, originally mm-hmm. from 1932, and Yen de Bont's The Haunting, an adaptation of the novel The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson that had been previously made in 1963 by Robert Wise. While Rennie Harlan's Deep Blue Sea, 99, a film about genetically altered sharks, is not a remake or adaptation, it clearly not only drew upon the cultural memory of Jaws, uh, and then she says, but it also nodded to Jaws through this thing I already brought up, the bigger, smarter, faster, meaner tagline, which seems to be looking back. Uh, but then she notes about the, the budgets of these films. So, so she says, quote, The budgets of these three horror films, The Mummy, $76 million, The Haunting, $80 million, and Deep Blue Sea, $78 million." demonstrate the escalation of the horror classic to blockbuster status and the expectation that higher investment will bring higher rewards a promise that to varying degrees paid off and so i think that this is really interesting at this point in time
1: yeah and now i'm shocked to see these numbers here in front of me now because i didn't see deep blue sea until this week but i did watch the mummy and the haunting back in the day when the mm-hmm. you know the year they came out and you know, The Mummy, say what you will, it, and for starters, it is also kind of a hybrid. It's kind of Indiana Jones meets The Mummy. Sure, uh, yeah. Say what you will about The Mummy, though, it, 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 it makes an impact. I remember it. Oh, uh, yeah. The Haunting, $80 million, and I think the only thing I vaguely remember is Owen Wilson's character got
0: his, his head bashed in by a, by something. And that's it. I, I remember nothing. <laughs> yeah. uh, the Haunting, I think, suffers from bad CGI, I recall. Um and it's it's weird that it is a very limp, banal adaptation of a book that is actually just on the page in, in, enormously, enliveningly scary and interesting. Hmm. If, if you never read Shirley Jackson's *The Haunting of Hill House*, it is a fantastic ghost story, and and it'll still raise hairs today. I, th- I think the Ian DeBont movie is a is a, a prime example of really squandering excellent source material. Hmm. But anyway, with all that context, what we have here in Deep Blue Sea is a derivative sci-fi horror mashup movie positioned in the market as a massive summer blockbuster, which was relatively successful, which was historically unusual at the time. But in keeping with broader trends in the year 1999, something was, you might say, in the water in 99.
1: Well, what do you think that was culturally? I mean, was it the the dawning of of the millennium? Was it – uh you know something else was it just the you know the the fear of uh you know genetic um uh, advancements in science
0: it's a good question i honestly i don't know i mean uh it, it's clear that it did sustain in a way like horror i think remained relatively uh mainstream big business in in film through the 2000s even though a lot of the you know the, the big money making horror movies at the time were, were I, I would argue drek um but it didn't go away and so yeah i i don't know exactly what changed then but i i do think it's interesting i mean it could be that There were just a number of big hits that were more like the conventional summer movie, but had elements of horror in them that preceded this. So Jurassic Park, I think, is a great example. Mm -hmm. I don't know if people remember this because now nobody really thinks of Jurassic Park as a horror movie. But at the time, people did sort of semi-classify it as horror
1: Yeah, I mean, I watched it, rewatched all those Jurassic
0: Park movies for the last few years, and, uh, you know, the the scares still hold up. Yeah, I agree. And so another thing is, despite the fact that, like I said earlier, there are almost no post-Jaws shark movies that I would really personally argue are good in an unqualified sense, I think Deep Blue Sea comes close. It's consciously highly derivative. It is, you could say, dumb, but... Like I said, you can definitely get this one off the lot, and you could tell that a lot of critics, even a lot of the snootier film critics, really liked this movie against their better instincts. You can read even some kind of artsy critics who are, I don't know, just writing about it as if they sort of can't resist wanting to tell you to go see Deep Blue Sea. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, part of it, I think, comes back to I mentioned earlier how the alchemy of oh, Kip Cool J's character in this preacher about how it, they managed to make him just the right level of funny, just the right level of cool in a way that works in a way that but 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 in, it's the sort of attempt that often fails in other pictures. And there's a lot of that in this film you can point to where you can you can realize they're doing things that are often done poorly, um, mm-hmm. but they, they do so with finesse in this film.
0: I agree. I, I don't think there's much about this movie that you could really classify as new or innovative, except in a recombinatorial sense. But it has a tremendously powerful autopilot function, and uh, and you, you, I think you're, you're not going to be sad you watched it.
1: Yeah, and on that note, I will, will also point out that there are at least a couple of really well-executed twists in this film. So if you haven't oh, seen yeah, it, yeah. if you have any interest in seeing it, um, and you've managed to avoid these, uh, the spoilers so far, let us not be the ones that spoil it for you. Go out and see it and then finish this episode.
0: That's a good point, yes. Yeah, so there, there are a couple of glorious twists. We will be discussing them. So, uh, so yeah, if, if you would like to see the movie, you haven't seen it, you don't want to know what they are, pause right here, go watch right this moment. Always love issuing spoilers for movies that are decades old.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, because it's weird. Like this is one, like I say, I didn't watch the year it came out. I watched this week. And there's Mm -hmm. plenty of stuff in it that was spoiled for me just through pop culture. Just because the scenes, you know, hit well enough for for audiences and
0: people keep rediscovering and they become memes, etc. Okay, how about the elevator pitch for this movie? I've got two, actually. First one is, the only way to find a cure for neurodegenerative disease is to create a batch of ornery, hyper-intelligent mutant sharks. Fortunately, they are contained within a cage and will never escape. <laughs> uh, second, second, I would say, is uh, LL Cool J has written a song where he turns into a super mind freak shark and we need a movie to go with it. Uh, I'm, I don't <laughs> think that is the actual uh, creative process that led to this film, but I want to believe it is. Uh, well,
1: let's let's go ahead and have just a little uh, taste of that trailer then. Tell me, Mr. Franklin, have you ever known anyone with Alzheimer's? No. What if you could end all that suffering with a single pill? Give me till Monday morning, 48 hours. I'll give you a that'll skyrocket your stock price. In the most advanced research facility in the world. Wow. Beneath its glassy surface world of gliding monsters a team of specialists is working against the clock
0: did someone order the fish
1: on an experiment to benefit mankind
0: sharks never show any loss of brain activity as they age with this close to the reactivation of human brain cells.
1: but before they can save millions of lives tell me i didn't see that they recognize that gun
0: it's impossible sharks do not swim backwards they can't
1: They'll have to find a way to save their own.
0: Okay, I guess it's time to talk humans. All right, well, let's start at the top here with the director.
1: Uh, It is, of course, Rennie Harlan, born 1959, a uh, Finnish-born director. Thus, the if, I don't know if you noticed this, uh, Joe, but there's Finlandia vodka in the film, which is uh-huh. uh, prominently featured. I, I believe that is a, is a nod to the, uh, the,
0: the Finnish nationality of, uh, of the director. There are a uh, number of nods. There's one part where LL Cool J plays a chef in the movie, and he has like a, a chalkboard mm-hmm. where he has written today's specials on the wall. And one of them says Finnish pancakes. I don't know what Finnish pancakes are. <laughs> How are they different than other pancakes? I have no idea. But
1: Maybe. I mean, every culture has pancakes. Um, Savory or sweet? I guess so. All right. So, what else did uh, Harlan do? Well, he gave us such films as *The Nightmare on Elm Street*, *For the Dream Master*. Is that one of the good ones?
0: Uh, yeah, that one. I mean, uh, good, entertaining, definitely. Okay. *Die Hard* two. I actually watched *Die Hard* two within the past year, and it is odd. It's pretty entertaining. It's, uh, I mean, it's a fun watch, but it has. Uh, the thing that stuck out to me about it was that it has a lot of clangers. In the in the the script. So it has a lot of these things Mm -hmm. that are supposed to be like a pithy retort or a one liner, but they just don't scan like they just twang like an off like an out of tune guitar string. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I don't know, I feel like the script needed a pass for smoothing. But otherwise, yeah, a a very uh, effective action movie.
1: All right, now I've seen the, the next one I'm going to mention Cliffhanger that was the oh, yeah. the Sylvester Stallone uh, mountain climbing adventure film.
0: That movie um, is a laugh riot <laughs>
1: yeah, it's in the tradition of the Iger sanction uh, but with more guns, I think it would oh. be one way to describe it um, yeah, John I remember Lithgow, yeah yeah, John Lithgow's in it he plays the baddie right
0: mm-hmm. uh, yeah
1: he's the villain I, I remember enjoying it uh, and Lithgow made he 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 made for a, a tasty villain in some pictures back in the day. that's for sure totally uh harlan has done a lot of other work he he's one of the directors that put out a, a he did a hercules movie in which hercules has a buzz cut back <laughs> from that that period in cinema where it seems like we had multiple buzz cut treatments of uh of, of greek mythology do you remember these
0: no i don't know what you're talking about
1: what, oh what there was, was this um i mean it, it's, i'm not i can't really define it by by the years but it seemed like oh, there was okay. a period where you, you had a film like this you had the um uh, what was it, the, the remake of Clash of the Titans? Um, oh,
0: okay, more recent years. I, I I thought we were going back to like the 80s or something.
1: No, 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 no. Because uh, you go back to the 80s, I think you still had long-haired. I think it, oh, yeah. a, a lot of it comes down to the fact if you're going to have – a Hercules movie, no mm-hmm. matter what you're calling that character, if he is, is he Hercules or is he, um, or is he Samson or is he, I can't remember mm-hmm. the Italian variant. Uh, if, it's, if it's a muscle man movie, then what, what is your muscle man's hair going to be like? What is the fashion of the day? So if short hair is what a, a you know, a hunky muscle dude has when mm-hmm. the picture is being made, well, then your Hercules is going to look like that. That's my theory.
0: I, I think my Clash of the Titans will always be the curly locks of uh, the guy who plays the dad and Veronica Mars. Not that dad. Not her dad. The 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 movie star dad. Oh yeah, Harry Hamlin. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. that's my Clash of the Titans.
1: I, I I recently rewatched that one with my son. He's a big fan of it. He likes it. It's good. All right, let's move on to the screenwriters. Not not a. Uh, I don't have a lot to say, but I think you have uh, some tidbits here. But we had Duncan Kennedy, Donna Powers and Wayne Powers. Uh, Duncan Kennedy also wrote a year 2000 episode of The Outer Limits titled The Grid, which I haven't seen yet, starring D.B. Sweeney, but I will put it on the list.
0: Yeah. uh, So I found an L.A. Times article from July 1999. So it was covering the lead up to the film. I think it came out like a week before the film was released. And it has an interview with Duncan Kennedy, one of the screenwriters, about where the idea for the film came from. This was a spec script. Uh, So, you know, aspiring writers out there who are just, you know, you're forging your own path. You're not trying to get into the system. You're just writing your own idea. Here's the inspiration for you. So the article reads as follows. As a kid growing up in Queensland, Australia, screenwriter Duncan Kennedy witnessed firsthand the horrific effects of a shark attack when a victim washed up on a beach near his home. Quote, there was not really much left of him, Kennedy recalled. In the years that followed, the memory of that attack might have contributed to a recurring nightmare Kennedy had about being in a passageway with sharks that could read his mind.
1: Oh man, why don't these sharks read people's minds? I bet well, that. Well, they I,
0: almost I, do. Yeah, I bet he edited that out of an early draft. That would have been better. You should have gone full bore. Sharks can read mm-hmm. your mind, and instead, in this one, they're just—they're just so smart. They come off as telepathic. They anticipate the humans' decisions before they make them. But I think that's just because the humans are being outwitted. You know, the the sharks are better at the chess game.
1: I love this, though, because ultimately, though, the dream imagery of sharks swimming after you in flooded passageways, um, like it, it it, only makes a kind of faint dream logic. And this mm-hmm. film finds a science fictional way of making that dream logic plausible. And it works in, in so many ways. Like it's not yeah. just encountering the sharks out in the open, uh, you know, to... Um, Just to quote Gil Scott Heron, where Jaws lives. No, you're encountering them in hallways for human habitation and human movement. They are on our turf. They have invaded or are part of
0: our world now. I love the hallways in this movie. This movie is all about hallways and gimme gimme.
1: Yeah, they're very nice hallways. Very well done. As someone who's watching a lot of Outer Limits episodes from the 90s, (laughs) I recognize a nice sci-fi hallway.
0: But anyway, so this article goes on to say that Kennedy finally purged those dreams about the sharks in a hallway that could read his mind by writing a screenplay uh, about them, which they say evolved into the new Warner Brothers thriller. So perhaps in an earlier draft of the screenplay, the sharks could read your mind. I'm not sure. They're they're not Mm -hmm. clear about that. One thing that's funny is reading about market research about films that came out decades ago. So another Mm -hmm. thing this article in the LA Times notes is that uh, is that recent tracking data shows that interest in the film is very high among its core young male audience, though not as high as the interest was for the other upcoming film, The Blair Witch Project. <laughs> or maybe not upcoming. Maybe at this point, Blair Witch had already come out. I think it came out sometime in like July 99 or something like that. Okay. But let's talk about this cast.
1: All right. So we have Thomas Jane playing the character Carter Blake. Uh, Thomas Jane was born 1969, and he is our... He is our shark spurt uh, in the, the film. He is uh, he is uh, he's our, our lead hunk, uh, and he's he's very much in leading man mode for this one. Um, you know, he's he's in a wetsuit a lot, um, just just looking real handsome. Uh, but he he's been in a number of interesting films over the years, ranging from Albert Pyam's Nemesis Cyborg movie uh, in 1992 uh, to Terrence Malick's The Thin Red Line in 1998. Uh, he was in the film adaptation of Stephen King's The Mist in 2007. Mm-hmm. And he had a, a really a fun recurring role on The Expanse. So uh, for my money, he's one of these actors that, you know, for a while, he was very much in the leading man mode. And as he's, he's gotten older, he's kind of, um, aged into more interesting roles, so you'll see him playing supporting roles where you know he still gets to be uh, ruggedly handsome and all, but he gets to be a little weirder, you know, and we get to see the weirder Thomas Jane come out.
0: Do I remember right? In The Expanse, he sometimes wears a Tom Waits hat.
1: Yeah, he's always wearing a wearing a hat, um, and he's supposed to be a, a belter in that, so he's. I don't know if it really comes off in the, the show too much, uh, but he's, yeah, he's supposed to be uh, really tall and thin because he has grown up, um, you know, out in the asteroid belt. Low gravity, uh, yeah. Yeah, but he's a fun character with kind of a noir twist to him. Um, and I, I believe he had a, he had a fun role in the recent Predator movie. Um, he played one of the mercenaries in that, but he had a, he had like Tourette syndrome or something. They had some sort of a, like a twist to his character that
0: huh. uh, made his performance a little more noteworthy. I watched that movie on an airplane. uh, Oh, I I did too. It's a great (laughs) airplane movie. (laughs) I don't recall him being in it though. Maybe I missed him. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, that was probably me. Okay. So he's our, our leading hunk for the movie, but also you could say, you know, you could discuss the rest of the movie and not even mention him and you'd be fine.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he does all the things that his character is supposed to do and, uh, and he does well, he does it well, but not in a way where this is, he's not the most memorable part of the film. Um, Then we also have uh, Saffron Burroughs, who plays Dr. Susan McAllister, born 1972. I have really not seen her in much, so I I can't say a lot about her, but she was uh, the star of Mozart in the Jungle, and she was also in Wolfgang Peterson's Troy.
0: Yes, she she seems like an actor who's done a lot, but not a lot that I've seen. Uh, a A lot of movies I've heard of, but never watched.
1: Yeah, like maybe she's just gravitated
0: towards like more serious and mainstream stuff that I I haven't necessarily seen. I think she was in uh, one of those Marvel shows. She was in like Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. or something. Oh, okay. All right. I also never saw that. Yeah, I I didn't see that one either.
1: But uh, let's see. But we do have some other people of note here. I mean, most importantly, we have Samuel L. Jackson playing Russell Franklin. Uh, Samuel L. Jackson, born 1948. um, A legend... And also has a pretty legendary scene in this film, yeah. uh, which I, well, I guess we'll get to in a bit. But uh, Jackson's a, always an interesting character to check out his uh, filmography because you know he started out doing like all these little bit roles, and then he eventually evolves to become one of the biggest names in Hollywood. Uh, and he's always a compelling screen presence. You know wh- whether he's you know Mace Windu and start the Star Wars movies, or Jules Winfield and Pulp Fiction. Um, but, uh, oh, and of course he was in Jurassic Park, um, which which was one, you know, one of the influences for this film. And I would say, for the most part, his performance is very much Jurassic Park mode. He's very much doing that level of character with a little more charisma.
0: Oh, I can see what you're saying. I mean, I would say in both films, I think the character that he's supposed to be playing is kind of the steady hand. Yeah. He, he's the guy who's there who when everybody else is panicking he knows what he's doing.
1: Yeah, and I guess that's that's something about a lot of his most notable performances is he often plays a character who's very steady. Um yeah. Um, And, you know, you see the extremes of that with someone like Mace Windu, who's a very, you know, very logical character, Mm -hmm. uh, very cold and calculating to a certain extent. And even a character like Jules Jules Winfield, you know, ultimately, he has this kind of wisdom to it. And he's like, he's always acting like he's got it figured out, even if things, uh, you know, fly off the handle at times. Yeah. Uh, fun fact, I don't think I quite realized this, but he has a cameo in The Exorcist 3 playing Dream Blind Man, and oh, he, yeah. his voice is dubbed in it. I, I haven't looked up to see exactly what the story wa- is on that, but uh, if you rewatch The Exorcist 3, uh, which we recently uh, talked about in passing, uh, then uh, you'll find Samuel L. Jackson in there as well. All right. We also have Jacqueline McKenzie playing Janice Higgins, born 1967, Australian actor. Uh, I think one of the main things in her filmography that stands out is she was in 1992's Romper Stomper opposite a young Russell Crowe. In this, she's what? Blonde scientist lady? Is that?
0: She's the marine biologist. Oh, okay. Yeah. She gets yeah. eaten by the shark.
1: I get a little confused at the time what everyone's role was in this operation.
0: Yeah, <laughs> we, like what does Michael Rappaport do again?
1: <laughs> yeah, well, Michael Rappaport, yeah, born uh, 1970 plays the character Tom Scoggins and uh he's at least partially part of our comic relief for the film. Um Yeah. They're not our primary comic relief. He's it's interesting. You when I saw his name in here, I expected him to be more of the the dirtbag comedic character, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh and he's He's only partially that.
0: You expect him to be the first guy to get chomped and it's not the case.
1: Yeah, it takes a little he gets chomped, believe yeah. me, but it, it takes longer than you'd expect.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh he's a, a stand up turned actor, uh, which has become pretty standard a pretty standard career trajectory, but uh Rappaport did it only I think three years into his stand up career and he's really been an established uh actor for many decades at this point so you'll find him in just about everything and uh yeah he's pretty good in this but again i expect him to be more of a comedic dirtbag uh to be more
0: you know just pure shark bait
1: and he's not
0: i think he is actually supposed to be a scientist of some kind but as you pointed out with jacqueline mckenzie's character there there are a number of characters in here who are vaguely some kind of scientist but it's not clear what they do or maybe it is clear and i just didn't notice
1: now, it is clear that our main scientist is the character Jim Whitlock, played by the fabulous Stellan Skarsgård. Oh, yeah. Skarsgård was born in 1951. Um, yeah, legendary Swedish actor and father to just an impressive cast of Skarsgårds these days. It's like they're, they're a bunch of them, and they're all, they're all pretty good, if not great, actors themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the first time I saw Stellan Skarsgård was in the 1997 spy thriller Ronin starring Robert De Niro, uh, which which has a fun supporting cast. You know, a lot of like spy action hijinks. Uh, Uh, But then I subsequently saw his work in the 1997 Norwegian thriller Insomnia, in which he plays a deeply troubled homicide detective. And he's he's really good in that.
0: That one got remade by Christopher Nolan starring uh, Al Pacino and... uh... Uh, Hillary Swank, I think, and, and Robin, Robin Williams. Williams yeah. yeah, Robin yeah.
1: Williams plays the the killer in it, and yeah. Al Pacino plays the uh, the detective role. Which I, I don't think I ever saw it because I just I was really impressed by Skarsgård's performance. I just couldn't imagine later day Pacino being able to like capture that kind of a a performance because part of like Skarsgard's performance in that is, if I remember it correctly, it's just very very sweaty and and it's, it's really getting across the idea that, you know, this character has not slept and is miserable and is deeply troubled.
0: And uh, yeah, it, it's a memorable performance for sure. Yeah, I don't think Pacino goes quite that far with it. He just kind of seems more spaced out, though I do recall Insomnia being a good movie.
1: Well, the, I mean, yeah, Christopher uh, Nolan. Yeah. Now, uh, Stellan Skarsgård, of course, has worked with a lot of great actors and, and uh, directors over the years. Too many to even mention here. But I'd say that that, that we are very excited. I know a lot of you are excited because one of his, his next big roles is he is Baron Harkonnen in the upcoming adaptation of Frank Herbert's Dune. So I'm, I'm super excited for that because there's always this kind of like rumbling... Um, Threat in his or he has—he has it in him to create this kind of rumbling threat in his voice and an intensity in his eyes. And I'm excited to see uh, what he is able to to bring about with Harkonnen that has not been
0: brought to life in previous film adaptations. Preternaturally ominous. um, Yeah, uh, uh, brings full ominosity.
1: Uh, He's an actor who's capable of bringing a certain weirdness and fearsomeness to his characters, but. Uh, Jim Whitlock in Deep Blue Sea is not one of those characters. Uh, he's, he's introduced like he's kind of a weirdo, like his character's mm-hmm. peeing into the wind. Uh-huh. But when we meet him, he's basically just a big, big scientist teddy bear and is not that weird. He's not really mad in a mad scientist way. <laughs> he's, yeah. He seems pretty likable. And uh, it's like most of the human characters in this. They, they seem fine. I don't really
0: want to see any of them eaten by a shark. Uh, yeah, we'll talk more about this when we get into the plot a little bit, but yeah, th- th- this movie does, I think, have some serious human villain deficiency.
1: All right. We also, of course, like we mentioned earlier, we have LL Cool J in this. Born 1968, he plays the character Preacher, who is not a preacher. He is a chef, but is it alluded to that he was a preacher? Is that why he's called Preacher?
0: Oh, I, I've forgotten that part. He may have been, may have been, yeah. Okay. Uh, uh, he does it, talk about God.
1: yeah. So uh, I'm I'm a little vague on that. But at any rate, uh, this LL Cool J, of course, hip hop legend, uh, star of H2O, uh, which is a Halloween movie, uh, star Mm -hmm. of Mindhunters, but not the the good one on Netflix, the bad one that I think Rennie Harlan directed, Uh, um, as well as the universally acclaimed 1992 Robin Williams movie, Toys.
0: (laughs) I believe you jest.
1: (laughs) Um, Yeah, but in this, he's Preacher the Chef and... um, and we'll talk more about his character as we go on, but um, uh, yeah, this this is a memorable performance. It's it's pretty early in his filmography, but it's really mm. solid.
0: Oh, he's a he's a ray of sunshine in this film. It is, every, every scene he's in is just delightful.
1: Can I mention real quick though that he he shares some scenes with a parrot.
0: Yes, and
1: the parrot is voiced by Frank Welker. Oh yeah, the uh, the, the vocal talent legend who, uh, who you'll find his name on just about any animated film and on many unanimated films. Anytime there's any, you need some sort of like monster voice or something or growls mm-hmm. even, Frank Welker is liable to show up and do it. And yeah, he's the voice of the parrot. Which decepticons did he do who I, I don't recall offhand, but he's in the mix like he's he's one of those guys that's just he's been around for a long time born nineteen forty six so yeah he's he's been around for a whole host of like whole, just just multiple franchises
0: in the animated genre now before we get off the cast, I wanted to mention one more actor quickly she has a small part in the movie, but Ada terturo is in this uh she oh. Ada terturo famous for playing. Tony's sister Janice on The Sopranos. Uh, She plays a part in this movie, I think, operating a communications tower and doesn't have many scenes interacting with the other characters, I think, until she gets blown up by a helicopter crash. And I feel like this is a positively criminal underuse of a a fantastic cast member. Uh, So if I had been the meddling studio executive on this film... I would demand, you know, if if you're worried about runtime, you can basically demote any other character's screen time except LL Cool J. And I guess except for Samuel L. Jackson's character. I'd say you could make, you could just like remove Thomas Jane from the movie. No offense, Tom. I mean, you're great, but <laughs> you could take that character out and promote Ada Torturo, uh, escalate her screen time, make her character a kind of vicious and manipulative schemer who like, convinces one of the sharks to go gnaw on somebody who she thinks i don't know insulted her kid or something
1: <laughs> yeah i think weirdly enough doesn't she actually have human interactions uh in the music video like isn't there a scene at the very end of oh. the music video where she's seated around a table with other uh like crew members as if they're on the you know the ship or the the, the base from this film
0: i believe you but i don't remember this part
1: huh also uh, worth pointing out that she is the, the cousin of John Turturro. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I have to admit, I'm not super familiar with her uh, filmography. Uh, just looking at the the list of films she's been in, um, yeah, I, I, I don't think I've seen most of these.
0: Oh, have you actually not seen The Sopranos? No, it's too, oh. Late.
1: too oh.
0: late. Oh, I think it's never too late to go back to The <laughs> Sopranos. And she's, she's just, I don't know how I'd classify, she's somewhere between... Uh, uh, a villain and hero in it, uh, as I guess a lot of the characters are uh, just wonderful.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, I believe everyone who says the Sopranos is really good, but it's just, I, I don't think at this point in my life, I can watch a, a, a gangster movie, movie or TV show unless it has like vampires in it or something like it. Oh, okay. it I need something else to drag me in. All right. And uh, you know, before we, we move on to the plot, um, I do generally mention the music here and the music in this film is by Trevor Rabin, Born 1954, South African-born composer who has worked a lot in the summer blockbuster genre, with scores for films such as Armageddon and National Treasure. And uh, uh, I, I don't have a lot to say about this score, other than it's it's very traditional in terms of what you expect from a blockbuster film from this mm-hmm. this period. It's it's effective. It does everything it needs to do heightening tension and all and reminding you that everything you know helping you propel you through the film like water rushing through a a, a flooded um, sea lab but other than that it, i i did not find it that memorable you know it's not like that john williams level uh, mm-hmm. which is an insanely high bar to put i should not even really fairly compare other composers to john williams but you know it's not the kind of, of film score where i heard it and then i'm like oh i need to look this up let's well, see if
0: this is on vinyl I think what they should have done is just looped Deepest Bluest under the film. I mean, <laughs> you know, it could work in any scene, really. Yeah,
1: I mean, and it, I think, yeah, I, I would have gone for it. Like, well, <laughs> what if they had? What if they had gone for like a hip-hop instrumental mm-hmm. style score? I don't know. It would have been too early for that. I don't think, I don't. certainly yeah. a film this big wouldn't have taken a risk on that.
0: Yeah, I, I don't recall much about the music, but I, I think it's fine.
1: Yeah, it's fine. There's no, nothing wrong with it at all. It, it totally works.
0: Okay. So maybe we should talk about some of the specifics of the plot. One of the things that I thought was funny was the more I thought about it, the more the plot of Deep Blue Sea resembles the plot of Jurassic Park, almost kind of beat by beat. Hmm. Because what happens at the beginning of Jurassic Park... There is an accident on the island involving one of the animals where someone is injured or killed, and this draws scrutiny from the parent company and their underwriters, and, and this spurs an investigation. Basically, somebody has to go to the island to look at it and see if everything's on the up and up, and that's how our characters get there. Deep Blue Sea starts almost exactly the same way. Yeah,
1: and it's, it's one of these, these openings to a film that it first seems like it's dumb, like it's just reinforcing the standards of, of the genre, you know. Uh, but then you realize that, oh, no, yeah, there's a twist to it. They're winking at us. They're having fun with our expectations. Because, yeah, the opening, it seems like it's just going to be straight up shark exploitation. You have young people, some, uh, I mean, all, I think, in swimwear, uh, you know, being sexy. And on a then, yacht, on a yacht, you know, being yeah. sexy, being you know, rich and being uh, essentially being shark bait. You imagine that the sharks yeah. are going to show up and eat them. It is the sharks uh, appear and it looks like they're about to chomp our, our victims here. But then something happens.
0: Right. Uh well one of the things I thought was funny. So people young rich people partying on a yacht. I I think it's a double-hulled yacht actually, isn't it? Is it? Okay. Uh, yeah, I was just thinking back to our Pacific Navigation episodes, but um <laughs> uh there's one part where they like knock over a bottle of wine on the yacht and it like spills this red wine into the water so it looks mm. like blood going into the water like uh. in all these other shark movies. Um, and then a shark starts attacking their boat and it's like, oh God, is is the shark going to kill them? But at the last minute, no, there is an intervention by the brave shark wrangler Carter Blake played by Thomas Jane. So these people are saved from shark doom, uh, by by Thomas Jane at the last minute. But of course, you know, this is going to make the parent company skittish (laughs) because, uh, because of course this shark is not just any shark. It is a shark that has escaped captivity from a research facility in the deep sea. Uh, and, and one thing you pointed out in the scene that I had forgotten about was that it has a teddy bear in it. Yep. During the, the initial shark
1: attack, a uh, teddy bear gets knocked off the yacht and we get a scene of it like sinking in the water. Right. Um, innocence literally
0: sinking into the depths. Right. The, the sinking teddy bear, I think, is very akin to the filthy discarded doll trope we've talked about. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the loss of innocence in the face of the cruel reality of shark. Uh, but so this sets up the situation of the film. We get a kind of corporate bigwig meeting. I think the parent company here is some big pharma company. And uh, Dr. Susan McAllister is there. This is Saffron Burroughs. And she is a brilliant scientist who is working on a cure for Alzheimer's disease, along with her colleague, Jim Whitlock, played by Stellan Skarsgård. And they are studying proteins in the brains of sharks as a possible treatment for humans And of course, we learn that what happened in this opening scene where a boat was attacked by a shark is that one of their sharks got out of captivity. It escaped from its pen and it went to go have some fun with a yacht before it was captured by, by Carter Blake. So here the pharma company decides, well, we got to have somebody check out this facility and make sure everything's, uh, you know, everything's secure. So they send their dependable executive, Russell Franklin, who is played by Samuel L. Jackson. So I think he's sort of going to play the role of uh, like all the scientists and the lawyer in Jurassic Park, the person Mm -hmm. who shows up to do a safety review and see what's up. Uh, And then from here, I don't know how much more about the plot we really have to describe in detail because you can imagine exactly what happens. It just all hell breaks loose. It's Sharkapalooza for the rest of the runtime. People go running around through a like a deep sea uh, research facility as different levels of it are flooded by sharks that, as we learn, are not just any sharks. Now they are smart sharks. They are hyper intelligent sharks because Dr. Stellan Skarsgård and Dr. Saffron Burrows have been very naughty and they have done something they're not supposed to. They made the sharks super smart and they made their brains like ten times bigger than they're supposed to be. In in order to get all of the protein they needed to do their, their research.
1: Yeah, like ba- the basic, the quote unquote science of the the whole picture is that sharks are incredibly resistant to various illnesses. So uh, this is where we're going to go to get this special compound. But the brain's not big enough. Got to make those brains bigger so we can get enough protein uh, or you know whatever shark juice from mm. each shark. And so that requires making them have super brains. Um, they,
0: they say a number of things about sharks that are that are not true. Like yeah. they say that sharks don't get cancer, which is not true.
1: Right? <laughs> um, yeah. So do not come to this film for your shark facts. It's even more confusing because there are these line these shark facts are often delivered, uh, you know, with an air of authenticity to them, and sometimes mm. they actually bring in actual. Um, they're the dra- halfway dragging real facts into it. Like, at one point, Thomas Jane's character says, oh, you know, they, they don't actually want to eat us. They, you know, they, uh, they don't like the taste of humans. Uh, but then he turns it into a jab at um, Samuel L. Jackson's character's, um, mm. um, like, background or something. But he, but he's halfway there. Like, you know, the, the, the reality that sharks are not out there in the ocean hunting for human beings. Uh, they have not evolved to thrive and depend on uh, on apes in the water they have uh, right. they have evolved to depend on things like like seals um and uh, and other game things that are going to actually be um, uh, you know that are actually going to sustain them and so in some cases when you have a shark attack what you're having uh, happen is a shark taking a bite out of something to see if it's something they would want to eat hmm. and then when that is a human there they often will say no thank you but they've already bitten into a human
0: right and, and of course as we'll- talk about a a bit more later i think uh, obviously uh, anybody who's listening to the show at this point i believe knows this but sharks are not your enemy you know the the uh, the convention of sharks being the monster that relentlessly pursues humans at any cost and just wants to wants to kill us all that that is a movie fantasy that that's just not real
1: and it's one that they're able to sort of circumvent in this film by having the super intelligent sharks that ultimately aren't that interested in eating humans they ultimately just want to escape this facility, mm-hmm. but then we also have some elements of the film where it's like, oh, we're able to trick them because they are so bloodthirsty. So, I don't yeah. know. They, they they only kind of halfway achieve the same.
0: Well, you also get the sense that the sharks in this movie don't just want to escape. They also, like, have a—they, gr- like, hate the humans. Yes. They're, they're, like, mad at them for experimenting on them.
1: And this is where we we reach one of the one of the flaws in the film. Like, nothing that fatally wounds the film or anything, but— Uh, I was about 30 minutes into watching it when I realized, oh man, all these humans are mostly likable at this point, unless they're going to drop some bombs on me later. Like Mm these, we don't seem to have any human villains. We don't have bad guys, human bad guys that we are rooting against and that we're
0: hoping get consumed by sharks. That's right. I I, I totally agree with you on, on this point. I think it's a major oversight of the film because usually in a movie about a killer animal, you need a human villain to inhabit the spirit of moral evil, you know, mm-hmm. to be the focal point of not just struggle for survival, but of uh, antagonistic drama. You know, drama typically is, is uh, a conflict between people, between humans with intelligences. And since giant killer animals in, in creature movies are not really morally bad, they're just hungry, uh, th- they can't really fill that role very well. I would say the closest thing to a villain in this movie, I guess, are the main science scientists, like Stellan Skarsgård and Saffron Burroughs, who are, I mean, in a way they're presented as as arrogant and having done wrong, and they must be punished because they, to use a phrase from Ed Wood, they tampered in God's domain. (laughs) But they are not really villains, they're just people who who did something bad and need to be punished for it. In this movie, I think the, the creators perhaps thought that they didn't need human villains since the creatures are not only killer sharks, but hyper-intelligent killer sharks, maybe leading to the idea that they are smart enough to be morally evil. It's kind of a stretch. It doesn't really work. And uh, I think they should have committed to having at least one of the human characters being like a complete jerk.
1: Yeah, it's kind of like the Frankenstein scenario, right? With Frankenstein's monster you know even if you have him doing despicable things like he he did not ask to be here he was created mm-hmm. you know and he bemoans the, the this fact you know he says and I did not ask to be created and yeah. um and and therefore how much blame can you really place on the monster's shoulders and the same goes for a lot of these sharks i mean for these sharks in this film another thing that comes to mind is that the not only are the scientists themselves not portrayed as particularly like morally corrupt or anything but the ultimate aim of the project is totally for the good of humanity. You know, it's about right. it's about curing Alzheimer's disease, which, you know, everybody in the film is on board with. And if you're watching it, you're like, oh, yeah, I mean, that makes sense. Yeah. If you've got to make some giant sharks to cure Alzheimer's, then let's let's do it. Like, what if they had had a point in the film where they revealed or even from the onset that they made it clear that. The shark research was about, say, creating immortality, you know, for the for, for the, you know, the, the privileged and few at the, the very top of uh, the socioeconomic ladder, you know, something of that yeah, nature yeah. there. There are twists they could have taken with it where you'd be like, oh, man, they were they're trying to do that and they're making super intelligent sharks to do it. That's mm-hmm. that's a, a double whammy of things we shouldn't be doing, people.
0: Instead, what you get is that these are researchers who unethically cut corners in pursuit of a noble goal. Right, which is a very different feeling for characters in a movie. And and you know, one thing I will point out, I wonder what you think about this. I think Stellan Skarsgård's character in this movie is interesting because. I think he's a little bit different in the finished product than his character would be on the page. Mm. I think he is written to play harder into the role of the arrogant scientist who thinks he's better than God and must be punished. But Stellan just doesn't really lean into that in his performance. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you, you know, there was another, I, I was reading a review of the movie by uh, a film critic named John Kenneth Muir in, in a retrospective from many years later. Uh, and he pointed out something about this movie that as soon as I read it, I was like, oh, God, it's so true. Uh, you can tell as soon as you meet him that Stellan is doomed because he smokes cigarettes, which <laughs> is a death sentence in any mainstream movie from the 90s. Isn't that true? Oh. Huh?
1: Yeah, I guess so. Um um, I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to to think on this one, but but uh, but certainly yeah we do have a notable scene where he's smoking early in the picture.
0: But actually, there was something I wanted to come back to about the idea of human villains and intelligence and and sharks as as a movie monster. There's another unintended consequence I think of of having the villains in the movie be hyper intelligent mutant sharks. Part of the appeal of a shark as a movie monster again this is the fantasy movie shark not sharks in real life. Is is a horror rooted in its apparently unthinking, unfeeling, mechanical efficiency. You know, as Quint mm-hmm. says in Jaws, it's you know, his eyes like a doll's eyes, like it's not even alive. It's just a machine that kills. Mm-hmm. So it is. It's not a human agent that kills out of animating feelings like hate. Or malice or even sadism. It doesn't have feelings about us. We are simply meat. And in this way, I think the traditional shark movie with a regular shark actually resonates a little bit more with some of the themes of cosmic horror, horror that is rooted in a semantic threat. It's not just the fear that you will be harmed or the fear that you will be destroyed. But the fear that by seeing yourself from the vantage point of a truly inhuman intelligence, you will see yourself as an object without meaning or significance, just a puny, soft, heterogeneous object of about 99 degrees Fahrenheit – um, and there are examples I can think of from movies that I, I find particularly amazingly scary that are on this frequency. One is a, a moment I love. I think I've mentioned it on the show before, but uh, from the 1978 version of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which is a mm-hmm. fantastic sci-fi horror movie. But it is the part where um, where a couple of the human characters have been trapped by some of the, the alien replicants who have been turned and one of the humans says to the leader of the aliens, I hate you. And the leader of the aliens says to them, we don't hate you. Profoundly oh, nice. chilling, right? Because it, it's it's actually so much scarier that the aliens are not doing this out of sadism and malice. We are just molecules to them. Like, they oh, don't man. hate us.
1: There's a, there's a great twist in an old... Um... Uh, a thriller novel by Jeffrey Household titled "The Dance of the Dwarves." Uh, it takes place, I think, in South America, and um, there's a, a lot of the plot concerns this um, these these deaths that have occurred that have been attributed to what's supposed to be a tribe of pygmies that mm-hmm. live uh, you know deep in the jungle. And so, our our character makes several attempts to communicate with them, and and puts out like beads as an offering, you know, tr- trying to to make contact and comes close. But then you reach the point where it is revealed that they're not pygmies. They are a type of giant river otter, uh, a predatory giant river otter with, uh, I think, some sort of a venom. Um, uh, uh, apparatus, and he realizes that that no, there is nothing to communicate with here. These are thing. These are creatures. These are animals that are hunting me. And there's nothing remotely human about them. They're they're you know they're they're giant otters, and it's um and, and just saying it like that, it might sound kind of weird. Uh, if it does sound weird, research giant river otters, and maybe that'll turn you around because they can be quite uh, quite fearsome if you uh, if if you, if you look at them in the right light. But um, but but in the in the book it's very effective it creates that same sort of level where you realize yeah you're not dealing with human agency you're dealing with something more primal
0: yeah that that absolutely sounds very chilling uh, and along, and on the same frequency as what i'm talking about there was another movie i thought of that that had a scene um that works in a similar way and it's the movie under the skin have you seen this one
1: uh, i'm familiar with it but i've never actually watched it
0: also very much has that uh that that cosmic horror fire and one of the most chilling scenes in it is not even with the the alien doing anything to a human. It is a scene of an alien just com- watching, completely dispassionately observing as some humans uh, are are caught in a like a riptide and are and are drowning in the ocean. And Whoa. the alien is uh, not hateful and not sad. It's just watching. Hmm. But 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 anyway, to bring everything back to Deep Blue Sea, by making the sharks in this movie super intelligent mutants that are capable of executing plans and capable of directed sadism and grudges, I think the movie actually loses some of the potential for unsettling semi-cosmic horror that's naturally there in in animals that don't have human, you know, that we don't think of as having human-like minds like sharks. And it becomes something closer to a movie with a villain that has human motives, which is counterintuitively more familiar, more comfortable, and more suitable for light entertainment. It's easier to uh, to, to sort of have fun and, and do light entertainment with a plot in which the antagonist hates the heroes instead of just unfeelingly wants to disassemble them. Hmm. At least I would argue.
1: No, no, I think it's, it's, that's that's a fair critique.
0: It's like few the monster actually despises us and and wants to do us harm.
1: <laughs> now the truth, truth be told, the monsters do uh, do some harm in this film. Yeah. Uh, I think that the first scene where it happens and it's a good good half hour into the film. It it yeah. really takes a while setting things up, uh, but then when when stuff starts going wrong, it really starts going wrong. Like basically Whitlock's character is just moving past the shark that they have in this kind of like semi submerged working area. Mm -hmm. And it just kind of casually turns its head and bites his arm completely off, just Uh completely rips his arm
0: off. Uh, Yeah. And a note on special effects, this movie has, it's not all CGI has animatronic sharks, which I love. I love Mm -hmm. the animatronic shark. They basically built little shark robots for this movie and they're great. Uh, There are some scenes where it transitions to CGI and I hate the CGI, which is made especially annoying because of the presence of these really great physical animatronics and the fact that most of the CGI shots are unnecessary. Mm. Pretty good for the day, though, I would say. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. It's 99. So, you know, this was an era of, of big, big budget movies having CGI that does not hold up at all. <laughs>
1: What well, should we go ahead and talk about Samuel
0: L Jackson's big scene? Right, the scene. This is probably the scene that the movie is most remembered for. Not probably, definitely. This is the mm-hmm. thing the thing everybody remembers about it. So, one thing that's strange about this movie is it's sort of in the first third or so, it feels like it might have three main characters. One of them is Saffron Burrows, the scientist. One of them is Thomas Jane, the shark wrangler, and the other is Samuel L. Jackson, the steady-handed uh, uh, corporate executive, but who's mm-hmm. not just like a suit. Uh, they, they set Samuel L. Jackson's character up so that he has a backstory where he's like a, a heroic survivor of, uh, of I think, a mountain avalanche where he was yep. trapped under ice with a bunch of people.
1: Yeah, yeah, he has some scenes where he's like, "Oh, you think you think sharks are bad? Let me tell you about snow." Uh, right. Yes. <laughs> But yeah, now coming back to the Poseidon adventure, like he does feel kind of like the the Gene Hackman character in that film, you know, in a disaster film, he is the character who can step forward and lead. Uh, He is the one who can unite people and bring them together
0: until he is right in the middle of giving a speech uh, about ice. I believe he's like, Mm -hmm. yeah, you think sharks are bad. Let me tell you about ice. Ice has a mind. You know, it hunts you. Uh, and then he's in the middle of, of giving this this rousing speech to, like, get everybody motivated to go, say, you know, beat these things. And then a shark just, like, hops up out of the water and bites him and just like yep. pulls him in. <laughs> pulls him
1: in. And then yeah. another shark joins them and just rips him apart. They make it abundantly clear. Yes. This character is totally dead and is not coming back.
0: I've seen a lot of people compare this scene to uh, the death of Tom Skerritt in Alien, Dallas in Alien. Oh, uh, yeah. Who at the time Alien came out, I think a lot of audiences, you know, we see it having seen it many times and knowing about the reputation of it after the fact. We sometimes can look at Ripley as the main character from the beginning. It's not set up that way. Uh, Like it is very much an ensemble of characters who are given almost equal screen time and if there's anybody who audiences would have been expected to assume was the main character who would be the last survivor in the film at the end it was tom scarrett
1: yeah yeah it's kind of a it's kind of like a heightened twist on the like the death of the would-be savior yeah uh, you know probably a popular version of this would be in uh hitchcock psycho you know where you have a character yeah. that's showing up that is surely going to save the day like they're the the presence of law and order that is
0: entering into this nightmare world but then they're taken out as well so yeah you think Samuel jackson is probably going to become like the emergent hero of the movie nope just gets chomped he's mm-hmm. and gone um And it is that's a great sequence though. Like it's, I I wish
1: I could see it like for real without having it, you know, had been you know spoiled for me. But but even watching it, knowing what was coming, it feels. You really feel the bottom fall out at that point because it's like, oh, my goodness, they're really screwed. Like this was their this was their guy. You know, Yeah, yeah. this this guy had a plan and now he's just completely dead. Uh, So I feel like it's a highly effective scene that uh, that really turns audiences expectation on its head.
0: Yeah. Uh, Now. As we said earlier, I think there's there's not really much to say about plot. Most of the rest of the movie is just set piece after set piece of characters sort of scrambling around to different places in this base trying to get away from sharks. There is a lot of stuff in the middle of the movie with LL Cool J on his own yeah, Uh, and they're good scenes. They're scenes where he's funny and he doesn't have anybody to act opposite. It's just him alone. Well, with the parrot, him with the the parrot parrot, uh, (laughs) alone in like, you know, hanging out in the kitchen or walking around in the hallways uh, dealing with a shark. Eventually uh, Ella Cool J does manage to kill a shark by blowing it up with an oven, Mm -hmm. uh, which is a, a really good scene. But I wonder about what you think about this, I get a sense that some of this stuff with LL Cool J was reshoots and fill-in. I, I would bet that once they had a finished movie, they were like, hey, everybody loves LL Cool J. We got to get more scenes with him early on. But maybe they didn't. they couldn't reshoot with all of the actors there, so they just added more stuff with him on his own.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I on one hand, it's easy to look at it and think, "Well, okay, this is early in L.O. Cool J's career as an actor. That you know, perhaps they didn't know that he was this capable, and you know, they came back and added more stuff." But then I've also read that that Renny Harlan like really. Campaign for LL Cool J to be cast in it. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, I think maybe he knew that he had these capabilities because ultimately he is. He's very charismatic. He's able to pull off the serious stuff, the wisecracking stuff, and the more comedic stuff all in a way that doesn't compromise the character. Like, he never feels like a comic relief character, even though he provides comic relief. Mm-hmm. Um, he, you know, he feels more like like a hero in the film and those winking moments where he's he's clearly they're clearly doing stuff with this character to, uh, you know, to to, to again play with audience expectations and to maybe, you know, get a laugh there. He's able to pull it off in a way that feels authentic, that doesn't feel like it's cheapened anything.
0: Yeah, uh, one choice that I thought was really funny was the decision to make his character not just uh not just a chef as a profession, not just like somebody who cooks for a living, but mm-hmm. has a genuine passion for the culinary arts. Like he considered <laughs> there's a part where I think he's like recording a video of like leaving his his legacy as testament to his children or something and he's describing his omelet technique. Yeah.
1: It's one of those things where you when you when you say it out loud it sounds kind of hokey,
0: but somehow yeah. it works in the film. Some, yeah. Somehow that it, it, it works. It's a very funny touch, and it it works. Yeah, I want a sequel where like Preacher opens up a Michelin star restaurant and he gets attacked by sharks.
1: <laughs> I mean, it is kind of alarming that they made at least a couple of direct to video sequels to this film, and I don't I don't think they brought back any of the main cast, did they? Or uh, or really I'm, put any kind of money into them? It seems like
0: you would have gone for it with a Deep Blue Sea too. I've never seen any of the sequels. Uh, In my mind, I've always classed them in the same category as the Starship Troopers sequels, which I also Mm -hmm. have not seen and kind of don't feel like I should. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's
1: probably one of those things where uh, on a business level, they're like, no, this film was this level of a hit. Mm -hmm. If we spend this low amount on the sequel, it'll automatically make this much
0: money. This is how much you're going to spend on it. And they did. Yeah. So a thing that's worth talking about with the ending of this movie Apparently, the ending is a product of a process that I hate in theory but I'm glad it happened here because I think it produced a much better outcome. So the ending of this movie is allegedly a product of focus groups. Uh, <laughs> in in the original ending of this movie, again, this is what what has been alleged. I, I couldn't confirm this, but you can find people writing about this. Uh, in the original ending, Saffron Burroughs not only survives the movie, she's the one who kills the shark in the end. I guess she redeems herself. I guess she realizes that it's bad that she cut all these corners in her research and she shouldn't have made the super- intelligent sharks and regrets it and she she blows the, the shark up in the end. And this one was more ambiguous, but I think it's also the case that in the original ending, LL Cool J may have been killed instead of saffron burrows. And I think one can see why audiences would have had extremely negative reactions to this because you cannot kill LL Cool J.
1: Yeah, absolutely. He's a very likable character in this film. Um, You you don't want to see him get eaten by a shark. And I I will say that when I was watching it, I thought he was going to get eaten by the shark because he is attacked by a shark laid in the picture in a way that looks severe enough that I'm like, oh, he's gone. But then he's just got a slight limp later.
0: Yeah, it looks like they filmed a death scene for him, but then went back on it
1: yeah which which I'm fine with it was totally the right choice but yeah. you, you know you look at that first film where basically a shark nudges still in Skarsgård and his arm falls off yeah. um, you know it's like he's, he's just like boiled chicken to this monster but yeah. oh cool Jay I mean he is he's made a tougher stuff he's, he's really ripped
0: um but uh, so apparently test audiences hated Saffron Burroughs' character. Uh with with some reason, I think they, they reasoned that she caused all of this. Like she mm-hmm. made the killer sharks, and they did not like her surviving and playing a heroic role in the finale. So the ending was changed so that instead she sacrifices herself to to defeat the sharks and she gets chomped into pieces. And LL Cool J survives getting bitten by the shark. And in the end, he helps save the day. So I think they, they kind of flipped the script on that. And then I, I wonder if they may have shot additional scenes for LL Cool J or, or additional moments for him to go earlier in the movie. And I read that they also edited out some stuff with Saffron Burroughs earlier in the movie that makes her character more sympathetic. So they kind of leaned into making her less likable.
1: Oh, wow. I mean, so obviously, it sounds like they used a focus group, but I'm I'm reminded of the the films of William Castle. You know, mm-hmm. like they could have gone in that direction, been like, "All right, now it's time for audiences to vote. Yeah, who right. should get to kill the shark,
0: and who will be eaten?" That that would have been that would have gotten people to go see the movie twice.
1: I'll also say that the final uh, shark death in this film is, of course, totally Jaws. Uh, mm-hmm. It's very reminiscent of that final scene where um, where uh, 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 the main character is shooting at the shark with the rifle, trying to hit the um, uh, the, the canister in its mouth. Uh, we have a, a similar but more elaborate science fiction-y setup going on in the, in the final moments of this film.
0: Yeah, there are three mind-freak sharks in this movie. One gets blown up by LL Cool J in the oven— one gets electrocuted by Saffron Burrows, is that right? And then the third one gets mm-hmm. blown up and when it's trying to escape.
1: Yes. And so we're left with just L. O. Cool J um, and our and our shark spurt, uh character. What's his Sorry. name? Oh, Wait. Thomas Jane. Yeah. Yeah, Thomas uh, Jane. And they're
0: gonna they're gonna be best buds for life.
1: Yeah. Well, they have they have kind of fun uh, back and forth there, floating yeah. on the debris, waiting to be picked up. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I was waiting for it. I was expecting there to be some uh, some dark shocker at the end, but it's no. They're good to go. Yeah, everybody's going to be fine. (laughs) Like I thought the rescue boat was going to get eaten by the shark by one of the sharks that wasn't caught. Like there was a fourth shark, which they allude to. Uh, But no, everything's good. So, I mean, makes sense. This is this is a big budget summer blockbuster. Uh, You want to send folks home happy.
0: You know the, the the snooty film critic in me somehow rebels. Like part of me, part of me is like, oh, this is this is such a derivative film, and part of me is like, I hate the idea that they shaped the ending with focus groups. But I'm not gonna lie, I love Deep Blue Sea. It's great.
1: Yeah, it's pretty fun. And I, and I and to your point, this. This was a, a very essential updating of, of our expectations regarding shark movies. They they did something new with the shark movie, which most shark movies did not do. And it was perhaps the last, like, good innovation, the last good pivot in in shark exploitation cinema. Because it seemed like, you know, you see everything that's come out in the wake of Sharknado um, has, I mean, I guess it's work. People like it, I assume, and people view it, it seems, but... Um, I don't, I do not, for my purposes, it has not been a, um, a good direction for the shark film, you know?
0: <laughs> well, as I've said, you know, I, I don't think there are any shark movies other than Jaws I've seen that are, that I would say are just unequivocally good. But at the same time, I've watched probably 10 billion shark movies. I mean, you yeah. Know, sometimes you just got to put one on.
1: I think the other thing worth noting is that this film goes a little fantastic, obviously, with the idea mm-hmm. of super intelligent sharks. And, and it is very mainstream and it's going for that mainstream audience. And I feel like maybe there is something to be said for the success of films like Sharknado because they mm-hmm. take something like the shark, something that is like an on, an on an innate and primal level. We find fearsome. And then, of course, it's worth saying that this fearsomeness has also been um, reinforced over and over again by media, um, mm-hmm. much of which is not even fictional media, but documentary style media and Shark Week style marketing um, This has all been reinforced and therefore something that is silly with sharks and it it takes some of the punch out of the shark for us and makes us maybe a little less afraid.
0: Hmm, Yeah. Yeah. And maybe that gets us to the the place we should end, which is a little bit of a stuff to blow your mind. PSA. We know a lot of our listeners already know this, but hey, sharks are amazing animals. They're really important parts of ocean ecosystems and they're not your enemy. That's right. Uh, let's,
1: let's dive th- through some, uh, uh, some important realities to keep in mind about sharks. Enjoy your shark exploitation cinema, but, but know all of this. So first of all, sharks are important, are important predator species that play key roles in their ecosystems. And while they can be fierce specimens, that doesn't mean they're not vulnerable to overfishing. They have, a, they have relatively slow growth, late sexual maturity, and a small number of young per brood. The harvesting of shark fins for shark fin soup is internationally a major concern. And according to the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, among the, the approximately 470 species of sharks, 2.4% are critically endangered, 3.2% are endangered, 10.3% are vulnerable, and 14.4% are near threat. And the great white shark, which, of course, uh, you know, is the Jaws species, this is among the threatened species. And on top of all this, as far as shark danger goes, uh, it is it is certainly true that certain species of shark can be extremely dangerous in exactly the right circumstances. Like nobody's denying that. But statistically, you're far more likely to be killed by, say, an insect or a dog uh, as opposed to a shark. According to the uh, ISAF uh, 2020 shark attack report, there were 129 alleged shark-human interactions worldwide in 2020. Only 57 of these were found to be unprovoked attacks. The rest entailed... Thirty nine provoked attacks, six boat attacks. So this is where the shark bites a vehicle of some sort, but not a human. Mm -hmm. Uh, One scavenging incident. This is where like a body is found. But the the wounds inflicted by a shark appear to be postmortem. So, Mm -hmm. you know, the the individual uh, likely died in some other way. And then the shark found the body in the water. Um, one uh, case that is uh, labeled as public uh, aquaria, which I believe means that it's something that's happened at an aquarium where a shark was being kept or in an aquarium mm-hmm. environment. Uh, three doubtful cases, six cases where no assessment could be made and 16 not confirmed. Now it's of course important to note that this, we're talking about 2020, so things you know were a little different this year in terms of you know how many people were traveling, you know to what degree law enforcement, uh, local and otherwise, was able to you know weigh in on some of these cases, but they drive home that these numbers are more or less on par. There there are always fluctuations. Uh, so in 2020 there were um, there were 13 related fatalities, uh, ten of which were not. 10 of which were confirmed uh, to be unprovoked, and that's above the global average of four. Uh, but long-term trends show a decreasing number of annual fatalities caused by sharks. So uh, so, so, bear all, all of that in mind. On top of that, I would also add that following recent trends, um, surfers and those participating in board sports accounted for most incidents, so 61% of the total cases that we just touched on and your risk of being bitten by a shark it just remains extremely low uh, so just always keep that in mind when you're getting in the water and I know when you're in the water it's easy to think about sharks I, I enjoy snorkeling but I do think about sharks every time I am snorkeling <laughs> so mm-hmm. I, I know believe me I, I feel you on all of this but you just have to remind yourself like what the numbers say, and if nothing else, if you're if you're in the waters, uh, you know, just think about like just the sheer number of people who get into those waters, and uh, and, and 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 how most all of them are not interacting with sharks at all. Uh, so I find all of that all of that is comforting, and also I uh, uh, should also point out there are some wonderful. Um, resources online that give you advice about how, you know, how to avoid sharks in the water. And these are some awesome, important tips to keep in mind. So, uh, so yeah, don't let shark exploitation cinema and, uh, you know, some of the, you know, maybe, um, you know, edgier and more uh, exploitive examples of shark documentary uh, steer you wrong.
0: Right. I mean, I, as I said earlier, sharks are not your enemy. But in fact, I would also say sharks are not your friend. I would say sharks are to be left alone. Just don't yes. mess with them. You know, they, you can admire them from afar. You can watch great documentary footage. You can appreciate sharks as amazing animals, but they mostly don't want anything to do with us. And I'd say respect their wishes.
1: Yeah, I would say by and large, we are a greater risk to them uh, You know than they are to us. All right. So there you have it. Deep Blue Sea. I know I, for one, would love to hear from anyone who saw this when it was in theaters or saw it on you know, home video without any spoilers, I'd love to hear your thoughts on some of the twists uh, that take place in this film because it definitely has uh, a couple of really good ones. Oh, and uh, you know, this is probably as good a good place as any for me to mention that. Hey, I wrote a short story about sharks. Uh, as as you uh, may remember, our former co-host Christian Sager masterminded a, a weird art fiction and nonfiction publication called Corridor last year. The Kickstarter was successful, and copies are uh, are, are said to be making their way to their owners. Uh, so, if you if you didn't get in on that Kickstarter, you can pre-order yourself a copy by going to. Um, Uh, Any of the Corridor magazine social media platforms and following the link there, they're on Twitter as Corridor Pubs, uh, and they're on Instagram as Corridor Publications. And I think that's also their handle on Facebook as well. So, uh, yeah, I've got a sci-fi shark story. If that's your kind of thing, you like that, you can read it in that magazine.
0: So humble. Of course it's their kind of thing. Check it out.
1: (laughs) And let's see if you're if you're maybe you're less interested in that and you're more about this weird house cinema stuff. Hey, go to stuff to blow your That's the uh, that's the, the used to be the website. Now it'll just shoot you to the iHeart page for our show. Uh, but there is a button there you can click on for store. And if you go there, you can buy yourself a weird house cinema T-shirt. You can get a weird house cinema. What a sticker, a tote bag. You can get j- just about anything except wall art. And you can't get wall art because our file wasn't big enough. But really, I mean, it, it's, it's big enough for all the other products. You could. Pop Possibly
0: one. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio.